Our scripture today comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, is the word of God for the people of God. The presupposition of what Paul says here in Ephesians 1 is that Jesus, this Jesus he's talking about, the same Jesus who was nailed to a Roman cross, the same Jesus who died for our sins, the same Jesus who was raised to life on the third day, this Jesus who is now ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, this picture of Jesus crucified, risen, ascended, seating at the right hand of the Father and ruling, that's not unique to Paul. If we go back to the book of Acts, we see it clearly there. Acts chapter 1, we see the ascension itself. Luke writes, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, when he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him, from their sight. 
They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood before them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back at the same way you have seen him go into heaven. That's the story of the ascension. And then in Acts chapter 2, when Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost, he, he adds these words. He's been talking about Jesus crucified. He's been saying, you, you people standing in my audience here in Jerusalem, you conspired with those who nailed him to the cross. But God refuted your effort, raised him from the dead. And he continues in verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. Jesus crucified, Jesus risen, Jesus ascended, Jesus reigning. This was predicted by Jesus himself back in Luke chapter 22. We can read there. Starting at verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the, of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated, the right hand of the mighty God. Jesus predicted this. Jesus said, you're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Father. This goes back to, to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. If we had more time, we'd go back to Daniel 7, 13 and see how Daniel sees one like the Son of Man coming into the Father's presence. And he's given dominion and honor and glory. We consider this whole narrative arc of what's going on with Jesus. We see Jesus born in Bethlehem, the Son of God incarnate. We see Jesus in his baptism taking on the sin of the world. We see Jesus from the beginning of his ministry through the cross putting himself in the place of us sinners, taking our sin and our brokenness upon himself. We see Jesus on the cross dying for the sin of the world. We see Jesus raised by the Father on the third day, defeating all the powers of sin, hell, and death. For 40 days, he's with the disciples, teaching them more about the kingdom. He ascends to the Father, sits at his side. All power and authority is given to him. We see Jesus himself saying that in Matthew 28. All power and authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. This idea that Jesus crucified and risen is seated at the right hand of the Father and ruling is the clear teaching of Scripture. The problem today is that we don't see it. What we see when we look at the world is one supposedly Christian nation invading another. We see a wholesale repudiation of the ways of God in a country that prides itself as a Christian nation, a country that even puts on its coinage and its currency, in God we trust. 
Two weeks ago, we see a man consumed with fear shooting up a grocery store, killing innocent people. Just this week, we see a young man consumed with who knows what, killing children in elementary school. We have political parties that put forward their little messiahs, offering God lip service, trying to buy voters. We see churches falling apart and losing to brokenness. We see this week news of a denomination in our country of predators as pastors and church leaders going after women in their churches. We see how other leaders in that church hid it and covered it up. We see our own denomination teetering on the edge of fragmentation. And even in our good days, we think we're winning when we shuffle sheep from church to church. We see all these things. And we wonder, how can we also say that Jesus is on his throne? How can we have the audacity to say that in the midst of all this, Jesus is ruling and reigning? I go back to an analogy first developed by Oscar Kuhlmann, a mid-20th century Bible scholar. What he did in his book, Christ in Time, is he had the idea of D-Day. Some of us are, are, are read enough history to know what D-Day was. Comes in just a couple of weeks, June 6th, 1944, was the day when the Allied powers crossed into Normandy and invaded the continent of Europe in World War II. What Coleman says is that the outcome of World War II was decided that day in that invasion. But there was still a lot of work to be done. There were still important battles to be fought and to won. The war was not over, but it was decided that day. And what Coleman does is says when he looks at Jesus on the cross, when he sees his death and his resurrection... He sees that the victory was won that day. But there's still work to be done. When we look at Scripture, we see that this Jesus, this Jesus crucified and risen, this Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, has entrusted his people, including we who are here today, with what comes next. And as I read Scripture, I get the impression that what we do matters. It's not just a matter, as, as I talked about a couple weeks ago, of jumping through hoops. It's not just a matter of ticking off boxes. It's doing things that matter. This text in Ephesians 1, Paul is praying that this church, the church in Ephesus, will take part. And what I'd, what I'd like us today to, to do is to put ourselves in the place of this church in Ephesus that will take Paul's words directed at them as directed toward us. Now the general picture that Paul is developing here in Ephesians 2, we might see more clearly in chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Paul writes there, that because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. See, we're seated with him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We see that, Paul, that God has saved us through the work of Christ, that he's seated us with him. And now here in chapter 1, we see that applied to the church where God is active within us. We see him here praying for the church, that the church would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know him better, so that we would know who he is, so that we would know what he's done, so that we'd know why he's doing it, so that when we look at the world, when we look at people, we can see them, we can see it, we can see situations from his point of view. That's why we pray for this spirit of wisdom and revelation. He continues as he prays for their hearts to be enlightened in order to know the hope. And I think this hope that he wants us to know is not just a list of truths or attributes of God, but he wants us to know it, and he wants us to know it. He wants to, us to know the theory of it. He wants to know the reality of it, but he wants us to know it in terms of experience. He wants us to know his intentions for us, he wants us to know that his intentions for us are good intentions, intentions for us to live, intentions for us to be blessed. But he also wants us to know those intentions for the world that he wants to bring about through us as we trust him, as we obey him, as we lean on him. It's as we know him, as we know God, as we know the hope that he offers us, that's what makes us the kind of people who can live like Jesus is on the throne even when the world doesn't look like he is. It is living this way that connects us with the mighty power of God we see in verse 19. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. Do you know, do you all know how much power it takes to raise somebody from the dead? Let's say you go to a, a nuclear power plant humongous amount of power, and you hook it up to a dead person, what's it going to do to the dead person? Nothing. It takes the power of God to do that. It's the power of God that Paul prays for this church to experience. It's the power of God that I pray today for us to experience as the church. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. The power that God wants to show in those who believe, who believe not just in the theory, but who trust it, those who give their allegiance to his kingdom. So if this is what Paul is looking for for the church in Ephesus, if this is what we're praying for for our church today, what do we do? Well, let's go back to Coman's analogy of D-Day. D-Day's passed. Christ has won the victory. Now's the time for us to go on the offensive. Now the offensive for us as Christians is not picking up our guns and going to shoot people. The offensive for us is taking up the way of the cross, the way of weakness, the way of God's wisdom, not the way of the world's wisdom. We go on the offensive. 
But we also do it by seeking God in repentance. Some of you may have heard or be familiar with 2 Chronicles 7.14. It starts with this line, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Do you notice who that's addressed to? It's not if the evil people out there will do that. It's not if the bad guys out there will do that. It's if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Too often we're good at humbling other people. Too, good, too often we're, we're good at confessing their sins. But as we go on the offensive, we need to start off with repentance, humbling ourselves, asking God to break our hearts over our sin, asking God to break our hearts over our brokenness, asking God to break our hearts over the brokenness of the church. But there's another thing that we do also. We seek a fresh outpouring of the Spirit. See that here in verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We pray for an outpouring of the Spirit because we don't have the power in ourselves. We don't have the smarts in ourselves. We need the Spirit. We're going to look at that more specifically next week on the day of Pentecost. When we do this, when we seek God in repentance, when we seek a fresh outpouring of the Spirit, that's when we can live like Jesus is on the throne. Not just live in line with some political or popular ideology. Not just living with the desires our culture gives us for wealth, for fame, for success, for pleasure. But to live in the way of Jesus, Jesus who went to the cross for us, in the way of Jesus who took up the way of suffering and weakness. When we do this, it will lead us to love each other stubbornly, to love each other stubbornly within the church, to be attached to each other, but it will also lead us to love people who are on the outside, people who are still enthralled to the enemy. When I look at the world too often, and by the world, I mean people around here, I continue to see an epidemic of loneliness. I see people who are hurting, who have no friends they can call on, who sit alone in their homes, who are just going through the motions, waiting to die. They have no friends. They have no one to call on. What would happen to, if we, full of the Spirit, if we, having our hearts broken by God, went to them, sought them out, and loved them? What would happen if we knocked on their doors, the doors of neighbors that we've maybe never even met, and share Jesus with them. That would be a way of living like Jesus is on the throne. It's when we live this way, 
It's when we live like Jesus is on the throne, when we live out of his resources, that we give the world a reason to believe what we say about him. As long as we say Jesus is the way and we don't live like he's the way, they're never going to believe us. They think we're just a bunch of religious people. But it's when we live out of his kingdom resources, as he rules from his throne next to the Father, that the world will have a reason to believe in him and put their trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we read in your word that Jesus, your son, is seated at your right hand, ruling and reigning. Teach us today. Form us today. Transform us today to be the kind of people who live day in and day out in light of that truth. Break our hearts. Break our hearts for you. Break our hearts for people. Let your love overwhelm us and live through us.